This week on Punch Mountain, it's a roundhouse kicking good time down on the bayou as we compete in the most dangerous game, being poor. Call your mama and your papa because we're watching Hard Target. Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies, not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. Look, we didn't put the mountain there, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake. I am joined, as always, by David Hada. David, how are you? I'm doing great, Mac. I'm looking forward to Hard Target. I'm looking forward to letting the good times roll and using an accent for the rest of the episode like I'm Gambit Petit. <laughs> That's right. Gambit, <laughs> he is... Uh, the uh, member of the uh, X-Men mm-hmm. from New Orleans, and therefore he's a, uh, a degenerate gambler, if I remember correctly. That's right. Yeah, he's a bit of a sleaze, like uh, like New Orleans types are. And so uh, that's the most uh, lasting memory of him. Look, Dave, if you're going to crack open a book of X-Men, Laura, i got to drop some knowledge on you, which is uh, when Jim Lee and Chris Claremont first created Gambit, he wasn't going to throw playing cards. He was going to, uh, of course, throw a meth pipe. Uh, just to, yeah, just a do, do, do people smoke meth out of pipes, David? I, I'm not quite sure they did in the 90s. I think that was, oh, yeah, it's when they smoked them out of shoes. They called it uh, uh, doing meth. Okay, that doesn't make any fucking sense. But, David, speaking of not making any fucking sense, Hard Target. 1993, what do you, what do you think of this movie? I think Hard Target makes all the sense in the world. I think in a world gone topsy-turvy, Hard Target is a, is a beacon of hope. You know, it's about second chances. It's about redemption. A hard Target really should be the next president of the United States. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, hard Target, David, more like... Hard to not love this movie because it's so good. This movie rules, right? Mm-hmm. This was uh, action maestro John Woo's first American action film. Jean-Claude Van Damme rocking a mullet this n- entire movie. Wilford Brimley dropping bodies. Lance Henriksen grimacing for all he's worth. And a 97-minute runtime? Thank you. Please. Thank you, God. Uh, this movie fucking gets it, David. You know what I mean? Mac, I'll tell you what. I'm a little bit worried. And I'm glad you mentioned the running time. I'm a little bit worried about... Two things. Yeah. After watching this movie, one, I'm worried that this episode is going to be longer than the movie itself. I have a lot to say, and it's a very short runtime, so we might be butting up against that rule broken. And then also, I'm kind of worried that for for the cynicism that I brought into this uh, viewing and this episode, for it to turn out the way it did, I'm a little worried that I'm going to like everything we watch from now on. Like, I, I feel like I've reached the age that I did when I started to like you too. And I was like, oh, okay, I, th- I think I get this now. Yeah, 38 for me, what about you? It was 37, that's right. See, I couldn't tell, you know, that's refreshing here because it was when I was, but right before my son was born. And I was like, is it just because I'm approaching 40 or is it because I'm about to be a dad? Why do I love you too so much? I was also tremendously sad at the time. Oh, maybe it just changes, you know what I mean? <laughs> Perhaps it is. If you think we might run over time, that entire audio play we did at the beginning let's just cut that you know as much work as we put into it yeah let's go ahead and cut that i mean the entire backstory of uh uh, chance boudreaux Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was complete with a lot of sound effects and a lot of work i mean it was great but let's just cut it well i read the excerpt from the novelization of hard target too we should probably cut that as well yeah um written by rl stein under a uh, a pseudonym rx9 that's right uh, so, hey, David, before we get into a movie where people hunt other people for sport, let's hunt friendship for the fuck of it. David Hada, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, Mac. I'm, uh, uh, I'm excited to do Hard Target. Like I said, I'm always excited to do these episodes. And uh, 
I want to shout out to my number one fan so far. I haven't even released an episode yet, but I want to shout out to my therapist who is really looking forward to hearing this podcast. I've been uh, talking about it in sessions uh, for a little while. And finally I had to just like, cause you can't talk about stuff in vague terms with your therapist. Like after a while, like the project that you're working on has to take on a shape of its own or whatever. You have to kind of let them in a little bit. So uh, I told my therapist that uh, we're doing an action podcast. She was very excited for us. Her first uh, suggestion was Bloodsport. And I oh. said, uh, yeah, I was very excited. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, you'll never, you'll never believe it. Uh, we, uh, we're doing Hard Target, which is very, very close. Uh, and Bloodsport is surely just around the corner. And so then she recommended another movie, which was actually on our short list of movies to do for like our first few. Mm. And it was a very deep pull. I don't know if uh, I don't know if I want to say it over the air right now. I think that's just getting people excited. Uh, that's that's wow. That's you got a pretty cool therapist. I've got a, I've definitely got the therapist for me if they're making movie wrecks that I've already seen coming. So uh, I, I'm a uh, shout out to Miss Sharon. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate everything you do. Well, look, I'm not going to betray my therapist trust by giving her your name, but um, <laughs> just like you do. But I look now, look, if you're going to talk, I got to give a shout out to my therapist. I, I don't know if I've told her about this podcast yet, but I did the other day mention I was on a comic book podcast where I had to read a comic book. And my therapist was like, oh, which book? And I was like, oh, you read comics? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, well, have you ever read any Alan Moore? And she's like, I love his uh, run of Swamp Thing. And I was like, that is the book we're reading, <laughs> Swamp Thing. So, um, Yeah. Therapist, therapy's cool, y'all. Get your head fixed, men. Yeah, talk your shit out, dudes. When we, later on, when we talk about how to tweak this movie to make it better, number one, Sean Spoudreau. Get some therapy, dude. Yeah, exa- so many people just need to get themselves fixed uh, in more than one way, honestly, and this movie. Real quick also, just one more thing. Uh, what's going on with me is uh, my my three-year-old kid was talking about this uh, show, kind of like you know, kid's science show. And they make slime kind of uh, come out of a jack-o'-lantern's mouth. Oh. And the host of the show is Emily's Wonder Lab on Netflix, if anybody gives a fuck. She's like, it's pumpkin barf. And uh, my three-year-old, instead of saying barf, he said garf. And I got to say, I like garf more. Oh, my God. I'm going to garf. Yeah. yeah. Immediately. Yeah. I really uh, do. Garf. Dude, so much garfing going on. Not that, I mean, barf is great, but either garf just is fresh. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. It's really bringing something to the, to the market. I like that. Oh, you know what else is bringing to the market? People are hunting him for sport. David, are you ready to you ready to go into this thing? Oh my god, I can't wait a second more or we're going in. David, what is your history with the hard target? <laughs> uh, with the hard target, I uh, I saw this on video as a teenager, so like 94, 95, something like that. This was when I was watching uh, action movies for the sole purpose of, of hoping to see some nudity. Uh, it was the only reason I watched uh, The Getaway with Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger. Under Siege was another one. Was like I'd sit through about an hour of that just for Eric Eliniak. So I was a real creepo back then. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I read it Hard Target. I was like, oh, come on, Van Damme. This thing's got to pay off. And it didn't. <laughs> so I, I've spent the past like 25 years or whatever hating this movie in my head, just being like, oh, this isn't very good. But I never bothered to revisit it because I'm from Texas. You know, There's no shortage of stories about people being hunted for sport. You've got the Galveston gang. You've got the Corpus crew. You've got the San Antonio fellas. The The state ran rampant in the 90s with uh, just groups of people hunting for sport. So uh, I, I hadn't revisited this in a long time, and I was very happy to uh, finally vi- revisit it again. Mac, what's your, what's your history with The Hard Target? Yeah, I've definitely seen this movie a whole bunch, at least chunks of it. Because it was, you know, it was a movie that would just play on cable a lot. And, I mean, Jean-Claude Van Damme, I mean, I appreciate him now. 
but he can be kind of cheesy. And so maybe it was the mullet, but I just was like, I just had the impression that this was one of his bad ones. Like I'd catch chunks and be like, oh, this is one of the embarrassing ones. Just something about him going like country or whatever. I don't know. I remember like seeing scenes from it and thinking it was cool, but not being too into it. And then later I found out that John Woo directed it. And I was like, wait, what hard target? And I went back and watched, like, I just, I rented it, I think at that point, you know, watched it from start to finish. And I was like, oh, this movie is amazing. So yeah, I remember certain things from the movie. I got to say, I was surprised about how much the movie I did not remember. I mean, there are things that uh, stand out. Uh, Wilford Brimley dropping bodies, as I mentioned earlier. Also, a snake gets punched. There's a lot of, I'm going to use the word nuance in this movie, which uh, <laughs> which might not fit with this yeah. movie, but it kind of really does. So David, what is, j- just to set people up right, can you read like the back of the, the box description of this thing? You bet I can. All right, here we go. Oh, what uh, what uh, format is this? Oh, this is a VHS-C, which was a Canadian VHS. Oh, interesting. So this is like... Uh, it's not like PG. It's not like R. It's like Maple Leaf 17 or something like that. Yeah, something like that. It's just like, you know, it says sorry. It apologizes before it shows you any violence or anything like that. So it, it just plays a little longer. Gotcha. The thrill of the hunt. It's the ultimate drug. And the more intense the rush, the higher the price. International superstar Jean-Claude Van Damme teams up with world-famous action director John Woo for this electrifying thriller that WGN Radio hails as easily one of the year's best films. Wow. I know, big time, big get. Was, was WGN Radio? Was that like a sports station? I think it might have just been Harry Carey during like a blowout. It was like, I'll talk about hard target, sure. All right. Van Damme is the target of an evil mercenary, Lance Hendrickson, who recruits homeless combat veterans for the amusement of his clients. Board tycoons who will pay half a million dollars to stalk and kill the most challenging prey of them all. Man. Laced with dark humor and slam packed with electrifying action, Hard Target is a must see for action fans. 1993, 97 minutes, directed by John Woo, rated R. Wow. First of all, whoever wrote that description, too much. You think so? Bored tycoons. I just. You think it's a little too much commentary in that one? Yeah. <laughs> a little uh... too editorializing it? Yeah, but, but first of all, the thrill of the hunt, it's the ultimate drug. But okay, copywriter, let's, uh, <laughs> wow, learn a little bit about you. Also, laced with dark humor. Um, I mean, I guess. I found it hilarious. Uh, I was yeah. gut busting. I mean, if like punching a snake is dark humor, that's, I mean, that's weird. You know what I mean? That's like. Sorry, this, uh, this joke isn't for everybody, but, uh, you know, we do get to punch a snake, which is pretty goddamn hilarious. So we open up on uh, a disheveled man. Uh, actually, first we open up on like the uh, the rain the rainy streets of New Orleans. Uh, you know the streets are all shimmering. New Orleans, David, David, New Orleans. Forgive me. Uh, so we end up open up on the streets of New Orleans, Louisiana. <laughs> oh God! Yeah, there's some shitty blues piano. Oh, that's New Orleans for the, you. The tinkling of the piano right away. I sat up and I was like, "Is this an episode of Blossom? Is uh, Doctor John gonna uh, give me his opinionation?" So I was very excited about that. Uh, and it's this uh, it's this disheveled man, you know, big beard, a combat jacket, that sort of thing, wandering through the empty streets of Nolens, uh, and he's uh, being hunted, we come to find out. Uh, we're introduced by uh, Emile Fouchon, played by Lance Hendrickson, and his number two, Pick Van Cleef, played by Arnold Vosloo. Oh, he's he's Mummy from Mummy, David. Is, oh, he's Mummy from Mummy. He's also Mummy from Mummy Returns. That's very helpful. That's the movie where the Mummy returned. That filled in all the gaps. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, so Fushan and Van Cleef, uh, they're trying to kill this man uh, before he makes it to the river. Yeah, and that uh, the guy playing 
the veteran, the person being hunted, is as you say in your notes, you're correct. It's the writer of the movie, Chuck Farrar, getting uh, he wants a he wants a SAG card, I guess. Yeah, I, I had to take a look and see, like, oh, was he a big deal? Was he or was he like a uh, was he a combat veteran himself? What is his resume? And then he was he wrote like Barbed Wire and The Jackal, and a couple other movies. And I was like, oh, you just you lucked out on a roll. You just you got two paychecks that day. Barbed Wire and The Jackal. Wow. I mean, I'm sure he's got like. You know, his version of 12 Angry Men sitting in a drawer somewhere, but like the ones they bought were like his dumb ones, maybe. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, we get a little taste of some John Woo style because there's like a close-up of a crossbow bolt cutting through the air. So we get a little bit of stylized action here. And you're wondering, uh, David, oh, is Hard Target going to nail the title card? <laughs> Will we get another thung crossbow cut, bang, to the title card? Yes. It's Hard Target. That's what we're watching. Yeah, so you're so you're watching uh, immediately. You know this guy's you know being hunted. He's walking through the streets of Nolens, uh, and immediately I, I've, I'm filled with so many questions. Like, what route would I take if I was being hunted for sport? If I was hunting for sport, what novelty weapon would I use? Would I use like a bowling pin to try to club him upside the head? So immediately, this movie has me enthralled, and I want more answers. If I was hunting people for sport, they'd call me the gunmaster because I would just straight up use a gun. Oh, that seems fun. Uh, but you know what? I would never hunt someone for sport, David. Mm, chicken. Hey, come on. Don't pressure me into they, they do say it's the most dangerous game. By the way, the opening credits, you know, it's listing the names of the movies. And there it is, David, right in the opening credits. The three words every action fan loves to see. Uh, and Wilford Brimley. When you see those three <laughs> words, you know it's going to be good. It's going to be a rock'em sock'em time. Yep. So they, they kill this dude, right? His, he's dead. And uh, after they kill him, uh, the guy who hunted him is talking to... You know, Fushan, Lance Henriksen, you know, you know him, right? He's uh, the guy from Alien. What's his oh, name? God, oh, from TV's Millennium. TV's What's his fucking name? Bishop. Bishop, yeah. Yeah. Just a craggly face guy or whatever. He really upped his growl for this role. A lot of grimacing, a lot of grimacing, uh, you know, a lot of, of uh, talking through bared teeth. And he asked the guy who, uh, who did the murder and he goes, was it worth it? And that dude goes, every nickel. That's oddly specific. Like- it made me think he was paying in nickels, and he's just trying to like feel out. Fushan was like, "That was worth every dime." I hope you don't mind. I brought this uh, sparklets jug full of dimes. At this moment, me, a dumb audience member, I'm going, "Worth it? Every nickel? Hold on, David. They were hunting this man. Were they hunting him for sport? Is this a business?" Whoa, things are dark, right? <laughs> That's right. So then uh, we go from that. To, uh, I guess, the next day or a couple days later, some bar and grill music plays. Some ding, 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 ding. A little guitar goes in. That's the the Graham Revel touch. Uh, he was in charge of the music for Hard Target. Uh, and we meet uh, a character by the, by the name of Nat. And Nat is played by Yancey Butler. I'm not familiar with uh, with Yancey Butler there, Mac. It's a witch play. She's a witch play David Tuesdays on TNT. I see. Okay. So uh, Nat, played by Yancey Butler, uh, shows up to investigate her father's disappearance. Turns out that homeless fella was her father, uh, uh, Doug. And uh, she's looking for Doug now. Yeah. And this movie wants you to know one thing about Nat, David. She's a very pretty lady. She is a pretty lady. Uh, she's got very flowing long hair, like so long when you first see it. Uh, it made me think that there was going to be a set piece later involving some jet engines and she was going to get her hair caught like a cape, uh, like, uh, the fella in the Incredibles. Uh, but that never happened. Instead, she just goes to interview, uh, some lady who runs a, a boarding house or she runs a house with rooms to let. Uh, this is where Doug stayed the last time. 
And uh, the conversation is not of too much consequence, except it really establishes the use of ADR in this movie. Uh, nothing was was recorded on the set. Uh, everything was done in the studio afterwards. And uh, this movie really belongs in the ADR Hall of Fame when you've got raspy Yancey Butler. You've got Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, really, the uh, good job with the audio on this one. So Nat the Witchblade, she uh, had a strained relationship with her father, but they've been corresponding in recent months, but uh, those letters have uh, run dry. It's almost like he's on a different sport. And so she's investigating, and she goes down and meets uh, Elijah Roper, played by Willie C. Carpenter, who reveals to Nad that Doug was homeless. You know, she's like, oh, where did he live? And then for some reason, we get a montage of unhoused people, just in case the audience like didn't know that was a thing. And then, however, we go back. No, sorry, we, we not go back. We go to a, a different diner. And here we meet our hero. That's right. We meet uh, Chance Boudreaux, played by Jean-Claude Van Damme, of course, enjoying a good steaming bowl of gumbo and an equally steaming bowl of uh, coffee, bowl of coffee, cup of coffee, Uh, the perfect Louisiana meal, uh, gumbo and coffee. Uh, He's having a hard time paying for either. He he pulls out, uh, tries to use a scam on them where he's like, my papa died and uh, he was buried with my money or something. And like the lady heard it last week. He's just a guy down on his luck. Yeah, she goes, how's the gumbo? And he says, a tragedy. Oh, this guy is knowledge to the bone, right? <laughs> he's got gumbo takes. First of all, he's got a name like Chance. I expected, I assumed his backstory is that he's a Major League Baseball player. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of chances out there. Chance Harper, the other ones. Sure. Uh, yeah, and so then uh, Nat walks in. Uh, she's got to make some change to for something. I don't know, go play Gallagher or something. And so she walks in and she pulls out her wallet. She's like, I just need change. But she pulls out every bill that has ever been created. Her wallet is flush with cash. You forget it's 93 and like you had to write a check for stuff. But when you're making change, when you're making change for just a bill, just reach in, grab any bill. You don't need to pull out your wad for everybody to see. Especially, what are you, flashing cash in, in this economy? Look, doesn't Nat know this is New Orleans, right? That's AKA Crime Swamp. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, four different scumbags notice that fat stack including our boy Chance, or Chance, as he's called later. (laughs) And so when Nat leaves, she is followed. Nat leaves. She's followed by some thugs. Those thugs are followed by Chance, and the music's starting to swell, and uh, it doesn't quite hit lyrics. Like, it goes on for so long. Don't, 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 don't. And you wait for it, and it never comes. And that was the most tense moment in the movie so far. So they rob her. And yeah, for a second, it looks like it might turn into some sexual assault. Thank God the movie doesn't go very far with it, because I don't fucking want to see it. Uh, because here comes Chance for uh, an action set piece. Now, David, if I was selecting the scene in the DVD, I would call this scene thoroughfare ass-kicking, because it kind of has like a Western feel. So he's like, hey, leave her, leave her alone. And they're like, what are you going to do, dickhead, or something? It's great. The dialogue sucks. Chance says, Why don't you, now take your big stick and your boyfriend and leave. And oh, he calls them... He knows these dudes are pretty homophobic, right? And so by referencing, or maybe they just, you know, it's a small town apparently, because uh, everyone knows Chance. Maybe they, these dudes were dating at a bad breakup, but they they get super fucking pissed. Yeah, they're they're starting to get up in his face. They're like, hey, boy, why don't you get out of here? And immediately you're like, hey, you just boyed Jean-Claude Van Damme. Like, you can, you've got eyes. You can see him, right? And you can see you, and you know what you look like, and you just boyed Jean-Claude. Like, that's... You're you're at, you're cruising for a bruising at that point. You know, I was reading an article about this movie and about John Woo's experience with it, and it's it's crazy because John Woo was talking about his elements of his style that are unfamiliar or just like not 
what you usually see in an American action movie. Like he was talking about how he would use like fades and dissolves and American audiences would assume those were flashbacks. And he also said that like they weren't used to like slow motion stuff, you know, which is just, it's crazy. Cause like um, so much of like um, modern action movies, I feel like, you know, you could trace back to it definitely feels John Woo is, is left his thumbprints on there. So the idea of thinking of like a pre John Woo world is interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, you know, watching this movie, you know, we're only a few minutes in, but you're getting those touches. You're getting, you know, kind of a gauzy feel to it. Why, you know, dissolves that sort of thing. It makes a lot more sense in The Killer, in Hard Boiled, mm-hmm. in A Better Tomorrow, that sort of thing. Like, The Killer is a very elegant kind of action movie. And it the, the dissolves and the slow-mo it really fits the elegance of that. And you kind of get senses during throughout this movie that John Woo wants to insert some elegance. But it just – it doesn't quite land. Yeah. I wonder whose fault that is. John Claude. <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he's painting with a bazooka. Speaking of elegance, we get a slow motion shot here of Chance like brushing his duster. There's a John Woo trademark there. Our hero is wearing a big, long duster jacket. He pulls back his duster at the hip, right, in slow motion. And you'd expect like, oh, he's probably revealing a huge gun, right? No, David. He's just opening his coat so he could pull out his fucking leg. (laughs) He's just showing off the corduroys like, you want to hear this thing swish, swish across your face? Then uh, shut up. And then here comes some loud whooshes and some kicking starts. This is, yeah, so so the ass kicking has begun. This was my first mark out moment because uh, there's, you know, there's three just morons in this group. Real, like, slack-jawed yokels. One of these guys is wearing sunglasses, and he takes a boot to the face. And it's like, it's almost a Mad Magazine drawing of someone taking a boot to the face where, like, their the side of their face is all smushed in. Their, their mouth is all akimbo. Uh, I loved it. I, I loved it so much. And then he gives a roundhouse kick to some guy standing on a car for no reason, really, uh, when he could be hiding behind that car. Yeah, no, Jean-Claude uh, showing up to work early, and I did love it. This is my first markout moment uh, of the movie as well. Because, uh, yeah, he gets some guy's arm a crazy break, but then when he kicks that dude's face, total just paintbrush kick. <laughs> <laughs> like, his foot just goes like all across the dude's face in slow motion. It's so funny. <laughs> I loved it. And there's, God, by the way, there's so much whooshing in this every like kick and punch just the loudest like cartoon whoosh in the world i love it you know comparing this movie to something like the raid 2 seems a little unfair because raid 2 was just such gonzo action you know really well done on on all kinds of fronts and so hard target feels really quaint in comparison but there's something really technically good about the the action and the fighting in this movie already a lot in the same way that like you remember when Bret Hart was called like a good technical wrestler where he's not quite flashy like Hulk or Ultimate Warrior or anything, but he can do the moves and execute them well? Mm, make it about sports, David, specifically basketball. Okay, so like, you know, the big fundamental was just good at fundamentals. Oh, Tim Duncan. Thank you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, now <laughs> I get it. Now I get it, buddy. Thank you. <laughs> well, they won all those titles by just executing the fundamentals. And I feel like this movie kind of, you know, it's not flashy, but it's really fucking fun so far. Chance kicks a dude through a window. He gives a guy an extra elbow. Classic arm break. David, we're 12 minutes into this, and the movie rules. We're also 58 minutes into this podcast. Holy shit. Uh, this ass kicking wraps up. And, uh, you know, Nat is thoroughly impressed because she saw the whole thing. She was, you know, saved the day, that sort of thing. Chance is walking away. Chance is uh, sashaying away. And then there's there's a dissolve 
uh, from chance and it dissolves into the American flag. And that was my second mark out moment. Within minutes of each other, I was already losing my mind. David, a Belgian action hero and a film by a Chinese director dissolves in the American flag. And when we get to the other side of the dissolve, David, the police are on strike. David, this is the future liberals want. <laughs> So so that shows up to the police station where we find out uh, that the police are on strike and uh, nobody's uh, nobody's working inside this office. Do they ever talk about why the police are on strike? I feel like it was mentioned in passing during that first establishing shot, but it really just serves to, to motivate the rest of the movie and it does not need to be revisited. It's kind of like in Roadhouse where the police are at like policeman's convention or something like that. Because <laughs> you're like, why are there so much open crime being allowed in this town? All oh, the cops are on strike. It's like, oh, okay, okay. We were at that police improvement seminar all week, you bastards. Why didn't you take the week off? Then Nat goes in the police station to file a missing persons report to Detective Mitchell, played by Casey Lemons. And uh, Detective Mitchell, one of the most confusing character intros I've ever seen. Okay, so first of all, you know, nobody's in this office. She's the only one working. She's a scab is what that tells me. I I didn't want to say it, but you're absolutely right. So this goddamn dirty scab is uh, alone in this office celebrating her birthday because nobody wants to celebrate this birthday of a scab. And so she's eating this like uh, beignet or maybe whatever, a funnel cake. Uh, Yeah, good question. What is it? It's some sort of like round cake-esque pastry. It looks like almost a cinnamon roll. But yeah, she's just alone by herself. She's holding this thing up to her face. Yeah, and so uh, Nat walks in and she's like, I'd like to file a missing her persons. And immediately the like, the put upon look on Detective Mitchell's face was just like, oh, you're interrupting my candle blowing out time. So what does she do? She opens up her desk drawer and puts the cake with the, with the lit candle inside the drawer and shuts the drawer. And we're supposed to root for these people. She says, happy birthday to me. Before Nat enters, what are we supposed to take from this character? Like, I expected her to stand up, accidentally step into a mop bucket. You know what I mean? And then like, (laughs) and then like fall into a a fish tank with an electric eel. Like it just, you know, because because then, you know, Nat comes in. She's like, I'd like to file a missing uh, person's report on my father. And Detective Mitchell's like, catch me tomorrow, honey. I'm tired. And it's like, you're a cop. This is okay. That's fine. Yeah. And the rest of the movie, she's like a good cop. Like, she tries, she, spoiler alert, gives her life. Wait, wait, actually, does she die or does she just get... No, she does die. She does die, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, seriously, if I was Casey Lemons, I'd be like, can we change this part of the script? Maybe she just, in her head, decided to ignore it, which maybe that was for the best. I don't, I don't know, because, yeah, there's nothing particularly redeeming about this character, especially when Nat, you know, finally, you know, cajoles her into, into doing her job, getting her to file the report or whatever, and that reveals that, oh, I guess my dad was homeless. You know, I come to find out he, he you know, was, was out of doors at this point. Oh, the detective's like, oh, he's homeless? Uh, I don't care. Because <laughs> you're, you're nobody in Nolens unless you own property. Uh, so Detective Mitchell's like, I'll tell you what. You know, kind of rolling her eyes again. She's like, look, canvas the missions, ask the shelters, find someone who knows the town. And it's basically like, oh, so find maybe perhaps a, a cop, maybe find you, you pig, you to do your job. So uh, the whole the whole meeting goes nowhere, uh, and that's back to square one. But she's like, wait, I know one person, that vigilante. Yeah, we meet up with Chance. He's at a wharf or a dock or something, and he's outside of, uh, I guess, a, a seaman's union, able-bodied sailor union office, waiting to see if he caught a boat assignment. So he'd go catch some shrimp or beat up some pirates or something like that. And when they're reading out the names, we learn that one of the sailors is named Luigi Gombas, which is my new <laughs> fake name if I ever have to give one. 
And then while he's he's standing there, uh, Nat rolls up and she's like, "I'd like to hire you." And he's like, "I don't. I'm a boat dude. I'm not a hire for pretty ladies, dude." Which because he's real dismissive or whatever. Yeah. So Chance is about to ship out, but oh, oh he's in arrears on his union dues. Oh no. And he's like, you're out, uh, you owe $217. And he's like, you got to the end of the week, Chance. And he's like, or Boudreaux. And he's like, I'll get the money. So he's like, oh, because the lady just offered him like $100 a day. He's got to go meet up with this lady. But dude, our action king loves an entrance. He basically like, she, uh, Nat is driving away and has to wait until some barrels get moved in order to keep driving. So instead of just like going up to a car, he's like, uh, excuse me, miss. He just waits until the barrels part and there he is oh my goodness very dramatic in a duster so chance approaches nan he's like all right i'll work for you for let's say 217 dollars which also happens to be the amount that he owes for arrears and i thought that was super cute that's like a very that's a very three stooges thing to do where it's just like all right i'll ask for the money exactly and not like a meal or a a drink or anything buy yourself a new duster you fuck (laughs) ask for 225 in the in this sequence, uh, when you know when we are reintroduced to Chansony and he you know uh, has that lovely shot again, really makes that duster pop. I, I guess heroes in, in movies wear dusters uh, because capes would look silly. Like you know, just the way it flows really makes them look awesome. So uh, Chance and Nat, uh, they're driving to go canvas a shelter, and they get to know each other. This is where he's like, "Nat, were you named after a bug?" Nah. And uh, she's like, why are you called Chance? And then he responds. He says, because my mama took one. You know, when you've got a name like Chance, you kind of have to come up with an origin story. It's sort of a boy named Sue kind of thing. But believe in yourself, Chance. Like, you know, just because your mom had a rough life or whatever doesn't mean you have to live that generational trauma. Like, make up some, make up a good story about why you're called Chance. Like, you know, because, I don't know, that's his job to figure it out. So they go to the shelter and they meet up again with Elijah Roper. And Roper's like, hey, uh, I got something for you. I was looking for you, not really. And he's like, I found your dad's shopping cart full of clues. <laughs> but Nat's going through her dad's stuff and she finds this big stack of, of flyers for sex workers. And Chance steps in and he's like, do not be offended. People pass them out for money. Like he had to explain to her why he, why her dad had a big stack of those. It wasn't like he was collecting them. Where he's like, I got to look at the ladies on the flyer. Uh, no, no, no. That was his job. You don't have to explain that to her. So they go to the office of the person in charge of handing out the flyers. Pornography adjacent individual named Randall Poe, played by Elliot Keener. And they go there to, to talk to that dude and get some info, right? But as they're talking to him, oh, who shows up? Oh, it's, it's Arnold Vosloo, right? Whose name is Pick Van Cleef? The the most action villainy name you've ever heard. Pick Van Cleef, of course. Yeah, and Pick Van Cleef comes in. Uh, he shows up looking and sounding like a wine drunk, excuse me, wine cooler drunk Dracula. Hello, what do you do? He just, he's like, so, he's so evil, right? Chance has got the good sense to be like, hey, uh, this guy's bad news. Let's get out of here. So they leave. They shake down, uh, you know, Randall Poe for, for some information. They're taken off. A detective just happens to walk up to Nat. He's like, oh, my gosh, we were just looking for you. Again, someone who clearly isn't looking for her. I meant to tell you, we found your dad. He's dead. And his body was found in a fire. So off to off they go to investigate that. And Detective Chance is on the case. Yeah. Also, at some point, Chance again says, like, they're going to find your papa or something like that. He just refuses to use the words an adult would use. Dad, father, mom, mother. No, it's always daddy, mama, papa. It's just like, stop. I wondered as I was watching the movie, 
you know, because he does my my papa a lot of that stuff. Was it just more pleasing to the ear to hear him say stuff like mama and papa instead of hearing him say dad or like we'll find your father? Like, mm, I, I think I think that was an aesthetic choice. Well, speaking of supposedly, they set this movie in New Orleans, knowing that Van Damme was going to be the star, as a way to explain his accent, which it clearly doesn't because. David, you, we've both been to New Orleans. If there's any sort of like Cajun accent, there's like some musicality to it. And Van Damme has no, there's no music in his voice. It's just, I'm talking like this. It's like, I'm gruff. I am telling a joke in an awkward cadence. Uh, even, I see, I can't even do it. It's like that thing in Dune, walking with a rhythm. There's a part coming up. It's coming up pretty soon. I'll just talk about it now where, uh, you know, it's Nat and Chance and Detective Mitchell. They're discussing the elements of the case. And you can tell that the script wanted a real suave, like, Kurt Russell type. Like, I'm quick with a quip and I'm quick with a punch, too. And just none of it is landing. It's like, well, I guess we better go to that thing. It's just like, it's very clunky, uh, just like my delivery is right now. Yeah, I kind of feel bad for the script at times that Van Damme is delivering it. No fault of his own, but just, yeah. So we cut back to uh, Poe's office. Fushan and Van Cleef are shaking down Poe, right? Because the last guy they gave him, Bender, they, he fucked up. He was supposed to big dudes to the families. Next thing you know, Bender's got some family down here. They're asking questions. They don't want those questions being asked. Uh, this was this was a pretty good scene for me. I uh, This has my third mark out moment of the movie when uh, Poe is, is asleep in his, in his little rundown apartment. By the way, credit to Elliot Keener. He plays a really good toady. Like just this really great stooge throughout the movie. Um, but he's he's asleep in his bed, and here comes Van Cleef, and he judo chops him to the gut. And just the chop, the reaction, <laughs> man, oh, man, I really enjoyed that. It was that it was that dark humor that the back of the box really promised you. They want to make sure that Bender listens this time, right? Mm-hmm. And so what's the best way to get someone to listen? You cut off their ear. So he cuts, off, oh, he cuts off part of Poe's ear. And then on the way out, Van Cleef takes a scissors, right? And he's like, uh, next time I'm going to cut off, I don't know, your neck or what. He said something stupid. But then he stabs the door frame with the scissors. And we get a kind of a, not like a super close up, but it's kind of a, a close up shot of the scissors in the door frame. And when he stabs the scissors, you get a woof from the audio. And right there in that moment, it was like, man, modern action movies were born right in this very moment. Like just <laughs> scissor stab of a door frame. Seemed like the most, like, it's almost like Excalibur got pulled from a rock. It just was, <laughs> yeah, it was, whoa, what just happened? Oh, some scissors stuck in a wall. Oh, is, is that all? Like, it just is amazing. <laughs> Everything could be action. Hell yeah. But then uh, Fuchan starts learning about Boudreaux. Boudreaux starts learning more about what happened to Bender, right? It's a real meat cute. They're having, like, a background checkoff. Chance is reading Emile Fouchon's file. Emile is reading Chance's file. Come to find out Chance has like a military history, stuff like that. Uh, so that uh, makes him good at knowing military history. Yeah, which is, at first I was like, oh man, this is bullshit. They don't, you don't see too many foreign born people in another country's military, right? But then I was like, oh no, wait, sorry. I'm, he's supposed to be from the United States. I forgot about that. Yeah, he's just down from old Lake Pontchartrain, Mac. So I was like, oh yeah, of course he's in the... He was in the Marines, which is funny because later on they're like, why do you care about these people? Uh, Chance, you have nothing in common with them. It's like they're all in the military. They're 
they're friends actually <laughs> yeah they've been buddies in town they live like a you know in the same city yeah exactly they have they're just called your friends yeah and then while he's looking for clue we get another john woo trademark a, a bird flies by a dove or a pigeon or something like that i think this one was a dove this one lands on his like uh his mirror his vanity where chance keeps his dog tags and it's pretty much the dove is just going, clue, clue. Because <laughs> then that reminds Chance, oh, the dog tags come in twos. I should go look for the other dog tag because the police only found one. Thanks, helpful bird. Exactly right. So then he goes to the burn site and with like the within seconds finds the other dog tag, which is some light dusting. But then two dudes come to beat him up, right? And they're actually like the same dude, except one has a beard, kind of like in a video game. You're fighting like some easily beatable characters, but like one's got a different coat or something like that. This felt like if Bebop and Rocksteady had made wishes to be human people. Like they really had that sort of roadie vibe to them. Yeah, for sure. They actually, they successfully get the jump on Chance and they beat him up. And at one point, uh, I think it was a dude with a beard, uh, tells Chance, he goes, you know, he's like, uh, you need to get out of here. And he goes, tell that bitch girlfriend of yours to point her titties north and step on the gas. Now, David, do I like the level of misogyny in this dialogue? Of course I do not. Of course not. Am I a fan of the phrase, point your titties north? Yes. There's something about, if you're going to give somebody some tough scumbag dialogue, that's, that's golden. There's something about oddly specific scumbag talk where it's like, all right, yeah, I do have titties. Point them north? Why north? This is going to keep me up tonight. Yeah, it, it just doesn't, there's like no... It's uncalled for, right? Like, <laughs> the same thing. If he had said to Chance, he'd be like, Chance, you need to point your dick north and step on the gas. I would have loved it just as much because <laughs> it's just like crass for no reason. <laughs> point yes. your titties north. <laughs> God, I, I I pray that someone is ever such a complete monster to me <laughs> to where I could tell them to point their genitals or sexual uh, characteristics. Uh, you don't need to direction. wait. You can just pick anybody. I'm a gentleman, David. All right, fine, Puritan. Uh, wipe! We get a wipe edit to the police station where Detective Mitchell is given the other dog tag as evidence. Also, uh, Chance came in arrested in handcuffs. And he's like, what was I arrested for? Accessory to getting beaten up or something? And they <laughs> kind of laugh it off. Oh, no, she's like, you're trespassing. But seriously, d- don't arrest him. How did they even get to arrest him and not the thugs? Like, was he just... Like in the raid two last week where those uh, goons were just writhing in pain in the loading dock. I just imagine like Chance was at the burn site until the police showed up. They're like, all right, you're coming with us. I think they knocked him unconscious. Oh, that's right. But did they drop him off at the police station? I mean, I guess somebody was like, there's some noise down at a burn, uh, a fire area. Send the police. I mean, Chance very easily, because look, he wanted to go to the police and like share with them the information he learned, but I, I guess they had to get him there. I don't know. Does it make him seem tougher? I guess. Yeah. It, it does feel weird. You had to have him run to the police. Um, this was the sequence, you know, where he's talking with Mitchell and where Nat shows up. This was the sequence where I was like, man, I really wish uh, Guy Pierce was around to be, the, to be this person instead. It does make you kind of wish like, it, it, it sort of... The idea of like having a, a funny, uh, wacky sidekick in action movies, or you you feel the need for it. But here's the thing: we have one. We have a charismatic character, Uncle Duvet. We just haven't met him yet because they only save him. Uh, they only excuse me. They only call him in at the very end of the movie. Anyway, we'll get to Uncle Duvet later. That's a oh, that's a spicy teaser right there. They should do like a countdown in the corner, like uh, <laughs> like on ESPN when they're telling you when a segment is coming up. It's like all right, four minutes till Uncle Duvet shows up. Then we cut to Fouchon, Lance Hendrickson, playing the piano. He's good, David. He's got skills. He's very elegant. 
because uh, while he plays the piano, David, he, he's also uh, conducting a symphony of crime, right? Except he's not conducting musicians. He's conducting his little sleazy pawns because Poe is recruiting Roper to be bait in the game, the most dangerous one. So we're in Fushan's house. The deals are being done. The production design in this house, like especially, again, after watching Ray 2, even the wallpaper was pretty. Even the lighting was really well done. To see this house and how beige it is and how bare it is really reminds you that like this movie had to be out of there by six. What emotion were you reading from Fushan as he was playing? He's, it was his face, it, it's either he's real angry for some reason or he's like real horny. Back, I, I hate that you asked it because you know my answer is going to be orgasmic. You know oh. that's what they were going for. He was, oh, this is my release. This is how I'm creative is by hunting people for sport. Not even myself, facilitating it for other people. And Van Cleef brings in the other person. He's like, oh, here's the guy. He uh, He's going to hunt. And so now Fushan waxes poetic about the elegance of hunting people for sport. Talks about... Uh, the privilege of the few to hunt the many. And he goes on to list those who have had that privilege. And he's like, soldiers, policemen, fighter pilots. And I'm like, hold on, you're you're already two back. Please don't list policemen there. I don't, I'm not quite sure we want to live in the world where they're having the privilege of hunting uh, the many. And then fighter pilots. That was a curious addition to that uh, that group. He he makes it some like weird right-wing argument where he's like, hunting people for sport is every man's right. Why does the government get to decide who has a license to kill? We should all be allowed to murder. Like, <laughs> he obviously didn't have that accent. So we cut to Poe's office where he's uh, recruiting Roper. And he gets a phone call and he answers the phone. What? And then, <laughs> anyway, he goes back to interviewing Roper. Just kind of a weird moment. But I love anyone who answers the phone. What? And he's talking to Roper and he's like, uh, you and Nam? And Roper goes, a long time ago. No, he meant now. Are you in Vietnam right now? <laughs> I get what he meant there, but just was like his dialogue. Tighten it. Um, and that's another weird thing for me. And we'll, I'm sure we'll see this a lot with uh, action movies of the 80s and 90s is the handling of Vietnam veterans or just, you know, military people in general, where the assumption in action movies is that if you served any time in the military at any point, you were suddenly a soldier of fortune and you were to be feared. And that's not really my takeaway from the military, but I do like that movies kind of take that ball and run with it. Yes, post-traumatic stress disorder is what some might call it. Other people might call it, you now have the super soldier serum, apparently. <laughs> and so the guy, the new hunter is like, uh, how is it possible that we can hunt for sport and uh, no one uh, immediately arrests us? And he's like, oh, well, Fushan's like, don't worry about it. We even got a doctor in the payroll over here, right? Yeah, and so Dr. Morton just kind of waves and says hi. He's been sitting there the whole time watching uh, Emil play piano. Uh, we find out, okay, so there's Dr. Morton, played by Marco St. John. We see him real briefly. Uh, we find out he's the doctor in the pocket of big hunt for people for sport. Uh, we don't quite know what his role is yet, but we're about to find out maybe one or two scenes. Uh, so now Chance, he wants to get some more answers out of Poe, right? And so he chases him down to a massage parlor. And here we meet David, my second favorite character in this movie, because Chance walks in and the lady working the, the uh, front desk at the massage parlor goes, Chance, what you doing here? And then Chance <laughs> goes, secret mission. And she goes, mm-hmm. And then just like points him <laughs> in the other direction that I guess he wants. But it just was like the Chance, what are you doing here? She says with a smile. It's like, oh, this lady knows a <laughs> handsome man on an adventure. 
Now, Mac, I, I appreciate your admiration for this uh, for this character, but you cannot mention this massage parlor without mentioning the name of the massage parlor. Oh, which is what, David? Oh, that's going to be Kiki and her Wonderfeet. Oh, then I assume this woman is Kiki or is Kiki's assistant? I assume she's the Wonderfeet. Poe is in there getting a uh, massage and he's making real gross noises. So then uh, Chance like, you know, sh- shoes away the uh, masseuse and he starts massaging him. And then Poe's like, oh, I really like this. This is great. Chance hits Poe. He's like, it's me, Chance. Give me some information. Chance, for the second time, says, like, why don't you tell your boyfriend? Which is like, all right, you've now hit this boyfriend insult twice. You're uh, maybe a little uh, homophobic there, Chance. Get it together, pal. You're in New Orleans. <laughs> Poe gives it up. He rats him out, right? He rats out uh, Fushan. He rats out Van Cleef. Yeah, he rats out Van Cleef by saying, he ain't even American, as though that's supposed to be some sort of tip over the line where it's like oh my god he's not even american i'll be right back and like it's such a weird throwaway but at this point uh poe is just grasping at straws and i do appreciate the effort so mitchell brings the dog tag evidence to morden and tells him to redo his autopsy now that she thinks it's a murder and morden is scared by this so this is okay so this is where we find out what morton does even though we just saw him in the previous scene but the scene plays out like his back is turned to the camera and he turns around to reveal that he's Morton. It was just such a weird, like the timing of this in relation to the other scene uh, felt super weird. But then I was also thinking like, okay, we're not, we have no reason to root for Detective Mitchell at all up to this point. Chance gave her the extra dog tag, gave her the evidence, and she immediately hands it to Morton. And I'm just thinking at what point in in this movie or otherwise, just in the real world, at what point do we stop handing evidence over to inept cops? Like at what point in the movie do you just go, you know what, mama, I'm going to hold on to this dog tag and figure it out myself. I forgot to mention <laughs> the way we get to this scene is we get some, uh, the music goes boom, boom, boom. And then like we cut to an autopsy. And it's like, Oh, okay. Why did we get that? Why did we get that noise? But yeah, you're right. He gives a, gives the evidence for safekeeping. She immediately gives a right to the hands of the enemy. But it scares Morton, and he's like, oh, I better split town. I'm going to burn all my files. That's right, yeah. So he's at his place. He's throwing all the files away, getting rid of them. And that's when uh, Fushan and uh, Van Cleef show up, and they do away with Morton with the good old-fashioned bullet to the eye through the peephole in the door, which I'm not quite sure if they set out to make it look like a suicide or an accident, but I'm not quite sure you're going to accomplish anything with the old bullet through the eye through the peephole in the door. How did Fushan find out so quickly the what's going on? You know how you fix those plot holes, David? Bullet holes. That's correct. And he shot him, <laughs> as you mentioned, right through the door. They no longer seem to be like too worried about keeping a low profile because they're they are stacking up some bodies. But Roper, however, has agreed to the to be hunted for sport for for the his chance at ten thousand dollars and a wide selection of prizes. Yeah, so he shows up in some leaky industrial part of town. He meets uh, he meets Van Cleef and he meets Fushan there, and so they're they're explaining the the rules of the game. We're going to give you this money belt. I'm always a sucker for money belts in movies. Uh, this money belt's got ten grand in it. Strap it on, and as long as you can make it to the river, you get to keep it. And so Roper's like, "Well, what what if I don't make it?" And Van Cleef says, "You're a sports fan. Figure it out." And I'm not quite sure. That makes any sense whatsoever, because I don't know a single sport that's going to end the same way that hunting people for sport is going to end. So that's a little weird. Well, we find out that his character is from Evilvania. So uh, <laughs> Lord knows what kind of sports they have in, in, in that, uh, that backwater hellhole. We don't need 
yeah. So, uh, so Roper agrees. He's like, fine, I'll do this. And then here comes the Eddie Bauer gang. It's all the, the customers showing up. They paid their half million dollars. And, ooh, finally they get to hunt a combat veteran. Yeah, and, and Fushan is like, you got a five-minute head start. But the hunter immediately cites him up. He's like, I'm just going to take him <laughs> off now. Which, again, why why pay that money just to, like, shoot a dude within seconds? Yeah, you really could have just paid half of that and just had, like, a saw set up. And just, oh, there's a guy in this room. You could just uh, suffocate him to death or something. But Fushan pushes the guy's barrel down. And he's like, tut, 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 don't shoot him right now. Yeah, he's like, this is New Orleans, not Beirut. And it's like, please show some decorum during our murder game. Yeah, but then later on, uh, spoiler alert, Roper gets gunned down on Bourbon Street with an automatic weapon. So maybe what he meant is that maybe Beirut is nicer than New Orleans. Yeah, Beirut will keep their bar doors open for people who might be shot. Yeah, so Roper's, you know, the the chase is on. If it's me, I'd be underground so fast. I don't know why. I don't know why the rest of this movie doesn't take place in sewers. But instead, it takes place in a graveyard, the famous uh, New Orleans above-ground graveyard, uh, where I guess everyone gets a filming permit. And so they're they're chasing Roper through here. What, what do you think of this scene, Mac? I mean, it, it was fine. It just kind of felt inevitable. So I honestly just kind of wanted to speed it up a little bit. Yeah, that's really – that's sort of all it was. Um, you know, we, we get a moment where Roper takes the, the gun from the, you know – one of the big game hunters and shoots the big game hunter. Yeah. That was a surprise because yeah, I was thinking like, Oh, they're going to kill Roper. Let's just kill him already. But then Roper kills the other dude. Yeah. Cause I guess that uh, $500,000 charge does not include any sort of bulletproof vest rental or any sort of helmets, uh, protective padding for your elbows or knees. I don't know. That scene did have a one fun shot in it though, David. It did. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a shot where, you know, Roper's hiding behind a statue and it's, you know, this, this bust of, you know, of somebody and an assassin comes along and shoots the bus and the head explodes. And there's Roper's head right behind her, uh, right behind the statue. And it reminds you that uh, Sam Raimi was a producer on this movie. And he was on set a lot because there's a lot of shots in this movie that really feel Raimi-esque. Sam Raimi was uh, a producer on this movie. And as John Woo found out later, he was brought on by the studio basically to be Woo's understudy. Because the studio didn't trust John Woo completely. And so they're like, the second he screws up, Sam Raimi, you're going to take over. But Sam Raimi, being a John Woo fan, was like, uh-huh, and had like no intention of doing that. In fact, whenever he John Woo said that Sam Raimi would show up, they would just like talk or they'd go out for dinner or whatever. He was not like trying to uh, be backseat driver at all. In fact, he even like stood up for John Woo when the studio wanted to go like a different edit or like cut one of his scenes. Sam Raimi was like yelling on behalf of Woo. But you, you're right, though. You, you can't escape. Like there is a lot of like Sam Raimi feel to some of this. Which, if you look at their careers, are they just, like, two like-minded directors in terms of, like, action and stuff? Because they do kind of – I never would have compared the two just because, like, Face Off and Evil Dead. I mean, they're both, you know, a little over-the-top stylized action movie kind of things. It's, it's funny. Well, you know, it, it's funny you say that because, okay, maybe not Face Off and Evil Dead, but maybe something like Hard Target and Darkman, which is also that sort of, you know, uh, a stylized, also kind of an elegant-feeling B picture. So I, I think there's something to that. It does. Yeah. It makes me wonder if there was any sort of cross influence there or if it was just sort of two people kind of hitting upon uh, some similar styles or whatever. But I don't know. It was cool to find out that Sam Raimi, an even nicer guy than what you already possibly know. So Roper, he gets, uh, he does get shot. Uh, I forget who tags him. And he's like, he's in the, he's on Bourbon Street. He's just like, help, help me, help. No one's helping him. 
And then Ted Raimi shows up. Roper goes, help. And he goes, hey, I ain't got no change, man. Which he didn't even ask you for change. I know that it's fun to put Ted Raimi in movies, but if, it, if it's that role, maybe you don't do it. I don't know. Whatever. Or or at the very least, don't ask him to code switch like that. Yeah. Like it felt like he was he was intending his uh, directing that at his audience. I ain't got no change, man. It's like, okay, we get it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. All right, brother. But no one's helping this dude, David. Yeah, and that's, you know, not to put this on Roper, because I've enjoyed him throughout the movie, but uh, here's the thing. If you ever need help, and you're ever in Nolens or you're ever anywhere past midnight, and you're out in the middle of the street, be specific. Tell people, hey, I have been shot. I need an ambulance. Uh, please, you know, instead he's just wandering around like, please help, please help me, help me, you know, and, and everybody, of course, is is, uh, is going to be scared of him. Uh, not rightly so, but <laughs> they could be more helpful if they knew what they were supposed to be doing. Yeah, if he was like, I've been shot, please call uh, an ambulance then, uh, or somebody, that might that might be helpful. But again, this is why I always have my bullet alert bracelet on. I uh, wear it at all times so people know when there's a bullet in me what to do. Yeah, but then he gets gunned down again with a very loud, unsilenced automatic weapon. Uh, sending the street into a panic. We cut to the next day. It's a roped off crime scene. Who's on the case? Oh, it's Detective Chance, right? Because Chance has gone from like a dude they arrest on site just for being passed out to now he's allowed access to crime scenes. <laughs> They're just, again, I think this is might this might have been where the police strike came into play. I almost wish they would have hit that note a little harder because yeah, he's just a few scenes ago. Yeah, exactly. Like you're not supposed to be at this crime scene and now they're just letting them take over and fill out the paperwork. Yeah. You really get the idea that the New Orleans police department at this point is like two days away from getting like an officer air bud, you know, like there's <laughs> nothing in the rule book that says a dog can't be a detective. And then we cut over to, I guess, outside of Poe's office and Poe is, he's leaving town, right? <laughs> I, I love that cartoonish sloppy packing where you've got like underpants hanging out of the side of your suitcase. I, I really appreciated that. Pick Van Cleef shows up and kills Poe, which is he's already leaving town. Isn't that what you want? He's not going to talk to the cops because he's gone. But instead, they're like, you know what? A better way to keep this under wraps is a broad daylight <laughs> super murder. <laughs> yeah, Arnold Vosloo, uh, this is probably for me his uh, his showcase scene. And it's not even a very a particularly good or dynamic scene i just really like how slimy he is and it made me wonder like how is arnold Vosloo's career trajectory not look like jason statham's you know what i mean where he just kind of started off as a heavy and then got one good role that people loved and then went from there like that really could have been arnold Vosloo. yeah i mean I, statham had he had some good guy roles i mean yeah does Vosloo have a uh, was he a couple good guy roles away from uh was he gonna be hobbs you know we'll never know oh man that would have been great so Chance, Nat, and Detective Mitchell arrive, if I remember correctly, or somehow they get there. They materialize, more or less. But who also is still there? It's it's Pick, Van Cleef. And here we have an action set piece, according to the DVD title menu. It's called Streets of Bullets, David, is what I would name it. Ah, oh, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah, and we got a lot of jumping and firing. And look out, Steph Curry, because there's a new jump shooter in town. It's Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> He's doing a classic uh, genre trademark, leaping and firing guns at the same time. He's also doing the the trademark of leaving yourself exposed because yeah, there's a moment where he like uh, where Chance jumps up in the air and lands belly first onto the hood of a car so he can shoot two guns at the same time. And I'm like, you know what? If it's me, I'm hiding behind that car and I'm firing intelligently. Yeah, and then some of uh, Fushan's uh, stooges pop up, which are these dudes who are dressed all in black, maybe maybe leather, who knows, 
wearing the black motorcycle helmets with the the tinted visor so you can't see their face. I honestly never got a sense of how many of these dudes there are. It was like however many were needed at that particular moment. I'm starting to think that motorcycle riders wearing all black with black helmets are kind of like the red shirt people on Star Trek. I don't know if you remember, David, but last last episode on the raid, too, they were very killable. And this movie as well, super beat upable by chance. So uh, so Chance, you know, he lays waste to these guys with the helmets on, including one moment where a uh, guy's on a motorcycle, he's riding toward Chance, and Chance kicks him in the face while, while the motorcycle's in motion. And I didn't quite mark out, even though the movie very clearly wanted me to, but there's no way that foot is still intact. If this is real life, that foot is disintegrating on contact. So not quite movie. You didn't get a mark out moment out of me. So during the shootout, Detective Mitchell gets shot and she dies. Nat is, you know, was like, we got to help her. Chance is like, leave her. He's like, come with me. She's dead. You can't help her. She's dead. Come with me. Shouldn't he tell her to go get help? Why (laughs) does he want to bring Witchblade along? She's a civilian, right? He brings her along so she can hold the steer the motorcycle while he fires. So the action set piece, Streets of Bullets, and now becomes an action chase scene, David. And what I'm going to call this action set piece, Streets of Bullets Extended, right? That's right. Chasing the motorcycle with Chance and Nat through the streets of Nolens. Uh, the close-up motorcycle work feels a lot like the motorcycle work in Wet Hot American Summer, where it's uh, you just see the handlebars and you see moving from side to side. Uh, it's it's actually pretty great. I almost had a markout moment here where Chance on the motorcycle jumped over some flames. Because first he like uh, he knocks off the other dude on the motorcycle, and then he's headed right for him, right? He jumps over some flames, and he's headed right towards the other motorcycle bad guy. And you're like, oh, man, he's going to totally fucking splat him. But he didn't really. This whole set piece kind of feels not underwhelming. Like, it delivers. It's fun. It, it, you know, there's a lot of good action in it. But a lot of it feel it reeks of too much effort, I guess is what I'm trying to say. A lot of it feels like an action stunt spectacular where they're just setting up things in place. Like when you see a car chase that just has boxes and mirrors moving from uh, one side of the street to the other. Uh, that's kind of what it felt like a little bit. Yeah, because instead of splatting the dude, uh, Chance just knocks him into a bunch of like cardboard boxes <laughs> from like the uh, cardboard cushion company or something like that because the guy seemed fine. However, I marked out moments later because what happens is – You have Chance, right? He's on the motorcycle. He just got away from some dudes, but he looks down and he sees that his motorcycle is leaking fuel. And yet here comes a truck right at him. What the movie does great right here is it it, it pauses in the action. So you give Chance like a second to look down and kind of like think like, "Mm, what's going on here? How am I going to beat these bad guys? (laughs) Something about that pause beforehand fucking rules because it just sets it up. Just It's like the pause, like the natural or whatever, like waiting for that pitch to knock out of the park. Because next thing you know, Chance, he's like, you know, charging at him on his bike. Uh, There's an obvious stuntman they keep switching to. And I guess they do a pretty good job of hiding him. Uh, Jean-Claude, or excuse me, when Chance is firing, his arm is like blocking his face when he's holding up the gun. So you can't tell there's a different face. But there is one shot where it's like so obvious it's a different guy. He jumps off the bike right before it hits the, I don't know. It just was like a lot of fun. And I, I definitely marked out here. I was chanting hard target at home. You got to believe yeah, it. Yeah, it's it's very clearly a stunt person jumping over the truck. But like in that moment, you just appreciate the stuntman. Like I almost wish the stuntman's name had appeared at the bottom and been like, great job, Craig. Like, yeah, great job, Craig. Yeah. And then so Chance, he, he wins that encounter. And then as he's running away, some more dudes come and they fire. But all they do is like blow up shit around him. So instead of just running down a street, he's running with flames behind him. So it's like, oh, no, don't make me look cooler, guys. <laughs> 
And so he and uh, Natalie, the Witchblade, uh, they escape by jumping onto a moving train, also full of cushions, I assume. Yeah, because if it wasn't, they would have just bounced right off the roof onto the uh, side and died immediately. But uh, thankfully, uh, it's just full of fluffernutter, so they uh, escape uh, comfortably. And Fushan, he lines up a shot, right, to shoot Boudreaux, but then Boudreaux like, goes out of range. And then you see their, the bad guy's faces, right? Yeah, so uh, Fushan smiles to Van Cleef, and he's like, Looks like we'll have one last hunt after all. Man, Vushan smile on Van Cleef. They love it, David. They love it. The scene holds on to Van Cleef a little bit too long because Van Cleef like raises his eyebrows. It felt like a cutscene in a video game that kind of glitches a little bit. You're like, oh, I guess are we just, okay, okay, that's the end of the scene. Great. This is great. But I loved it. Then we cut to uh, Van Cleef looking at some prints. Like where he's like looking at the ground and there's like the most obvious footprints in the world. <laughs> but you still get some like, you know, like some musical cues, the kind that a movie would use to tell us like, uh, oh, an indigenous person is talking about their spirituality. But they're using it for Van Cleef, which tells me that this dude knows the planet. He's in tune with the earth. They can easily track. Ch- Chance can't run from this yeah, guy. that's right. Or he can, but he certainly cannot hide, David. Yeah, that's right. And in order to kill uh, Chance, Fushan now brings in some more mid-level bosses, right? Just some more hunter. Do- and they, he works at a deal with them. Because, I mean, you got to give it to give ahead to Fushan here. You'd think that they would just leave town, or you'd think that they would just hunt Chance to kill him because he knows too much. But Fushan's like, I'm going to make some money off of this, bitch. I'm going to bring in some more, Some I'm going to like open up my Rolodex, bring in some hunters that like love hunting people for sport who are there like within minutes, I guess. And he's like, all right. He charges him money. He's like, you know, if you kill him, though, you don't have to pay. Oh, thank God. Uh, at this point in the movie, I'm. it finally clicks to me the flaw in this plan and, and, you know, in running this business because eventually all of your veterans are going to die. So what they really could have done is just worked a con where like, Hey, come hunt chance. You, you 750,000. And then they, you know, quote unquote hunt them and they quote unquote use real bullets or real ammunition and they quote unquote kill them. And then chance just happens to appear next week or at least his twin brother uh, rants does. And uh, just keep this thing going forever. Yeah, kind of like uh, Blondie in uh, Good and the Bad and the Ugly. Watch a movie every now and then, <laughs> Fushan. So now Chance and Nat are on the run through like woods and swamps. Now, David, is there chemistry between these two, Chance Not and at Nat? All. No. Not even a little bit. I never were like, are they going to fuck? Because I just, I never felt like they were moments away from it. And I, and I don't know if that's what the movie wanted here. But Nat is like, oh man, this sucks. And Chance is like, do you trust me? Do you trust me? She's like, yeah. And he's like, then close your eyes. And she closes her eyes, and then we see the snake. David, of course, this is a complete markout moment. I just marked out remembering this scene. <laughs> and I remember this scene with the snake, but I did not remember it started with the close your eyes, and she like closes her eyes happily. And then we, camera, uh, I guess, pans over or just in the reverse shot. I guess it's a wider shot because there's a tighter shot on her closing her eyes. And then a slightly wider one we see that just over her shoulder is a snake about to strike. But David, you you've seen snakes striking before, right? They kind of you All know. But what you may not know is is how snakes uh, strike is they open their mouth, like from uh, like a foot away, and then with their open mouth they slowly bring it to a human's neck, which is what the snake was about to do. Of course, Jean Claude Van Damme, uh, or Chance, grabs the snake like in midair. He's like, you know, stop it, snake, and he ends up punching the snake in the face. Which is just fucking great. That's pretty amazing. Then Chance bites the rattle off the snake with his mouth. And he says, I don't know how, I don't remember what he says, but basically he's setting up a trap. I was like, oh, I'm setting up a, a little gift for our friends or something like that. 
So sure enough, uh, here come the hunters. The hunter like steps on something and it prods the snake who's up in the tree. Because the snake is quiet now because he doesn't have a rattle anymore. And the snake just like stuck around on the tree, I guess, because he's a good snake. Good boy snake. Good snake. <laughs> and the snake falls mouth first on the guy's face and he takes him out, which is a crazy sequence. But somehow the bad guys knew it was a trap. As soon as a snake bit a guy, they go, oh, chance, Boudreaux. <laughs> like they just knew. It wasn't just like this was no random snake. This was a classic snake setup. Yeah, it's it's weird how they knew that. But uh, somehow they did. And then Fushan gets angry. I didn't notice this the first time I watched it. I, I watched it a second time with subtitles on. There's a moment when apparently Fushan is so angry, he says, I'll fuck you and then I'll eat you. Can you confirm or deny this for me, please? Oh, he 100% says, I'll fuck you and I'll eat you. <laughs> okay. To the dude who's dying of a, very quickly, of a rattlesnake bite to the face. And then I guess he crunches his neck. I was reading that interview with uh, John Wu, and it included some the original storyboards for this scene, which did not include the snake punch out. I guess that was added oh, okay. uh, after the fact. I don't know who thought of it, but that person needs a fucking raise. <laughs> but what happens is after they, they get the snake, Van Cleef holds the snake, and then Fushan shoots it while Van Cleef holds it, which in the original storyboard... Fushan picks up the snake and then shoots it himself from like, you know, just it's in his own hand. So there's like no distance. The other dude holding it up and Fushan shooting it is almost crazier. The movie is both uh, crazier and not as crazy as the uh, the original storyboard. It's just a little fun movie fact. Do you think Van Cleef was in on that that shot of the snake or do you think he was surprised like, what the? F- hey, man, I'm holding the snake here. Uh, these two dudes, no way, dude. They finish each other's kills all the time. Sentences <laughs> too. So he's like, as soon as I pick up the snake, I know Fushan's going to shoot it because he's a really good shot. And then, however, now we cut to someone who should have been in the movie a lot earlier. What do you mean? Uh, we're only 32 minutes left in this 97-minute movie. Let's meet Uncle Duvet, played by Wilford Brimley. He is the MVP of this movie. Uh, he comes along in the fourth quarter and just drains buckets. And uh, God bless him for showing up here. Did not expect Wilford Brimley to, to rock this Cajun accent. I've used the word rock a lot tonight, and I'm not ashamed of it a little bit. <laughs> But yeah, he, we see him and he's like making his own moonshine. And just to, he just, he takes a slug of it. And I guess it's it's powerful stuff, David, because to himself, he, he says, ooh, good whiskey make Jack Rabbit slap the bear. And also when Chance shows up, he goes, chance, which yes, extra <laughs> points for chance. Wilford Brimley attempting a Cajun accent here. Oh, well, I think he's succeeding with the Cajun accent. And okay, so let's break this down real quick. So it's Wilford Brimley uh, with, a, with a French Cajun accent. Uh, he's he's making moonshine out of his own still, uh, shooting guns. Later, we'll see him riding a horse. Do you think Wilford Brimley was offered this role, or did he audition for it? Mm. I feel like he just was offered it. I have to imagine so. It, it is a good question, but who would think of Wilford? I mean, was a producer friends with him or something? I yeah, who's th- who's writing this part or reading the script and going, you know, who can ride a horse? Wilford Brimley. He can ride a horse like a mother. Yeah, let's get him on the phone. So Chance is like, I'm on the run. And Duvet's like, shh, you had me at, you know, hello. Chance is like, do you still have that gun I gave you? And he goes, no, a Gatorade, my gun. I thought this was a joke. No, a Gatorade. Of course I have the fucking gun. But no, he's like, no, a Gatorade. No, for real, he ate it. Like, a Gatorade the gun. And then when he gives Chance a shotgun, Chance has like a moment with it. Like, he, you know, he looks at it and is like, oh, what's the backstory with Chance and this shotgun? I feel like there was a story there or something, you know, where he's like, I swore I would never use a gun again, like, you know, something. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he's like, yo, uh, Uncle Duvet and Witchblade, you guys go this way and I'll do this. I'll I'll try and track him down. And then he turns to Nat Witchblade and he goes, without you, I'm hunting them. 
which is a little rude. You know what I mean? Because he's basically like, uh, without you, we have a chance. Just FYI, you're dead fucking weight. You don't even need to add it. You know what I mean? Just be like, stay safe. Do you think that's supposed to be a romantic line? I don't. According to who? Jean-Claude Van Damme? Maybe. According, Well, according to the universe of this movie where it's like, hey, without you, I'm no better than them. You know, that kind of thing. Like that's, I could see a world where that's sweet. I considered that. But then when I looked at the actual dialogue, like without you, I'm hunting them. And I was like, no, I think he just means like, it's safer if you're not with me or something cool. like that. What, what an awesome thing to tell somebody. Now, David, does this movie continue to understand its job? Yes, because we get a wipe at it with a weapon sound. Uh, we cut back to the hunters. And one of the hunters, David is one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's muscle buddies. Oh my gosh, are you talking about uh, LaForce from Allrats, Sven Thorson? Yeah, of course. Sven Oli Thorson, one of Hollywood's most killable men. So the hunters reach the cabin, and we see Wilford Brimley on a horse, David? Yes, we do. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, that was the best special effect in the movie. And he's rigged his uh, still to explode, and he also like shoots a dude with an arrow, which, I mean, Wilford Brimley killing guys did not, again... I think if you pick up that box, it's a hard target at your old video store. You were not expecting that. So, so yeah, uh, Wilfred Brimley, you know, sets up the trap, blows up the still. The fire was, you know, people on fire at the still was pretty great. Like, they did some really great firework in this movie toward the end. Uh, Fushan's only getting madder. He sweeps a guy's leg for no reason, which was pretty great. We're just like, where you're so upset, you just want to, you just punch somebody next to you. That was pretty awesome. And then he's like, all right, pick. I want you to go, uh, go find him. Go get in the helicopter that we've rented for this. Uh, and I want you to find him. And then when you find him, land the helicopter and then kill him because we want to do this professionally. And like Pick is like, no, let me. I'm I'm a killer. Let me shoot him from the air. We'll be done with this. But no, Fushan wants wants this uh, honorable sport uh, to be played out. That was him being uh, like, why don't I just kill him from the the helicopter? That's what the audience is asking right now. It's like we're not asking any questions. Just do your fucking thing. Also, Pick looks at the grass and he goes, they were here about 15 minutes ago. Look, I'm going to be honest with you, David. I thought that was such horseshit that I actually looked it up. I was like, can you tell based on tracking how long it's been? I mean, it probably is bullshit, but there there was some writing on like, how can you tell like the sign is apparently what it's called? Oh. How old a sign is. So I don't, I don't know if you can tell if someone's been there 15, 20 minutes, but <laughs> I don't know enough to call bullshit, but it feels, it smells a little bullshitty to me. So the helicopters uh, catch up to Chance, who's just opening this horse up. <laughs> you know, so I don't know if it was Pick or one of the bad guys, but they do something and Chance and the horse wipe out, which I got to say, it looked like a pretty real fall for that horse. I wondered that. I, I wondered, you know, how they have at the very end of a movie, you know, no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. Let's say a movie harms an animal. Do they have to tell you how many or do they just not leave the that placard on the end of this movie? Well, actually, if you look at the placard at the end of this movie, it's, it, instead of no animals are hurt, conspicuously absent. But it does say, thank you for the uh, the crew gift, uh, homemade glue. <laughs> now, Pick here, he kind of like smiles when he sees Chance go down. But he kind of like you see him smile behind the sight of a gun. Did you get the sense here that Pick could have shot him and he's like, I'm not going to shoot him. I'm going to be a professional. Like he's letting him go. Or he just smiled because he he heard him. That's a really good question. I was thinking the latter, but now I'm thinking the former, especially with the the tension between Fushan and, and Pick, where it's like, no, shoot him on the ground, shoot him in the copter, that sort of thing. I could see Pick kind of sabotaging a little bit. Okay. So then uh, we cut to, you know, David, it's the bayou, right? And the bayou is full of old warehouses, factories, buildings, or whatever. And so we are now, uh, Chance escapes this uh, abandoned factory, 
And the bird alert, David, we get some more, some more pigeons here. So everyone's gearing up. This is going to be like the, you know, we've got them cornered now. Let's just go in for the kill. And everybody's picking their novelty weapons. I'm going to go with the crossbow. I'm going to go with the tennis racket. I'm going to go with flames, just flames shooting out of my hands. And we're almost to the end of this movie. I still haven't figured out my novelty weapon, Mac. I don't know what I'm what I'm using to kill people with. I've changed mine from lots of guns to now the uh, circle thing that Xena Warrior Princess used. I think I do darts. I think I just carry like darts with me and Ooh, see if I can man. dart somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be cool. So the uh, the motorcycle bad guys are back, and two of them chase Chance into this warehouse. And here we have an action set piece. Dusty warehouse dust up warm up is what I'm going to call it. Because it's a warm-up to a bigger action set piece. I'll, I'll leave that title up to you. Now, David, here's the thing with, about motorcycles, right? Mm-hmm. They're great for driving on roads. However, motorcycles have weaknesses, and that is they usually aren't driven indoors, right? Interesting. Chance Interesting, knows yeah. this. Mm-hmm. And so by luring the motorcycle indoors, they suddenly are not very effective, right? And that's when Chance decides to take these dudes out. And so one guy gets off the motorcycle and he's looking around because he can't find Chance. But then suddenly Chance is right there and Chance goes, hey, pigeon, which why does he fucking say it? <laughs> and at Chance's feet, there's a, a gas can or fuel can or whatever. And Chance kicks it into the air. And then right as it gets to the dude's like face level, Chance shoots it. It fucking explodes, David. So good. So good. Really well done. I enjoyed the heck out of that. Mark out moment for me. I loved it. Honestly, I cannot remember how the second motorcycle guy died. Like, even I was watching and I was like, what happened to the motorcycle guy? Like, I, if it happened, I forgot about it instantly. Yeah, he probably just left. He was probably like, he saw that and he was like, that was actually pretty great. I'm glad I saw that time to go home. Uh, what's his face? Uh, Uncle DeVay told Nat that he's like, you need to go get the sheriff share, which too many shares in a sentence there, too many share sounds, right? It confused mm-hmm. Nat because she immediately comes back into the action, right? Yeah, so she she splits, you know, she goes back to help Chance Somehow, for some reason, we don't really know. Meanwhile, uh, Pick is having the time of his life, rubbing it in Fouchon's face. He sees the dead motorcycle guys, and he's like, it appears your trophy is ripping us a new orifice, which is a pretty fun thing to tell people. He also has a little moment where Fouchon's like, uh, hey, I hope you're not uh, angry with me for you know making this thing worse and letting Chance live. And Pick's like, I don't get angry. I'm a professional. And uh, you can tell uh, Pick's really having the time of his life with this. Yeah. The, you see the bad guys are hunting Chance, and then they go into a different warehouse or a bigger section of the warehouse. And we see that, oh, okay, this warehouse is full of uh, like Mardi Gras floats, right? Okay, I guess so, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the point of this warehouse is to house terrifying Mardi Gras floats and or elements of them. And here we go. Action set piece, the final one, Dusty Warehouse Dust Up Official. Right. They're looking for chance, all the bad guys, right? And he's outnumbered. I don't know what it is because the number seems to fluctuate, but it's uh-huh. a lot to a little. We see chance and he's just like hiding. Oh, I, he's make, making some bird noises just to fuck with him. Or birds are making noises. Who can tell? I think he's summoning the birds. The birds are his friends. Which led me to a realization because the next time we see chance, he's sitting, uh, he's like perched on like a second story, I guess, of this warehouse. <laughs> a pigeon is like hanging out on his shoulder. Because I guess Chance has a mystical connection with all animals. And I really did in this moment it, it strike me that he's sort of, he's not your John McClane. You know what I mean? How so? Well, because John McClane from Die Hard is, uh, he's an everyman in that he's not like superhuman. He's not a trained fighter. What he is, is he's tough and he's clever. But Chance, however, this dude is a trained fighter, right? 
And whereas John McClane seems stressed out by what was going on, Chance is in complete control. I get that. Okay, I'm with you 100%. He 100% is like, oh, I want this to happen. I'm hunting them. I love it. (laughs) So what he does in order to start murdering people is he's got the high ground, right? That's not something you want to give up. Mm -hmm. He lowers himself from the ceiling, firing the whole whole time down. You're like, and he's lowering himself to the ground. He's being lowered, David, on a giant pelican. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, I don't know if the, I, we're assuming this pelican is some uh, part of a float, but it's a pelican of death now because uh, Chance is uh, is writing it down. He's firing with two hands, pep, 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 just killing everybody. This seems really ill advised to me because he's essentially a showcase piece in this warehouse where it's like it's practically in the center of the room. It's the center of attention, and he's coming down. Uh, but I'm not going to question Chance at this point. He's he's leading in the game, killing people from. A pelican. It does make you wonder, David, uh, why the uh, New Orleans Pelicans of the NBA don't start every game like this. <laughs> Although I, I, I do finally get why they're called the Pelicans from this movie. Yeah. That's that makes sense now. I fucking loved it. Now, David, let me ask you this: because you you're in Denver right now, correct? That's correct. Yes. If this movie was set in Denver, and the denouement here was in a uh, Denver parade warehouse, mm-hmm. uh, what would instead of a giant pelican, what would it be? Probably either the corpse of John Elway. Okay. Or like a giant can of Pepsi, I think. Uh, for a town that has a very little identity of its own, I would go with one of those two things. If this was in Austin and it was filmed, I don't know about 1993, but if it was filmed uh, this year, it would be a giant Austin FC shirt because uh, <laughs> you can't go anywhere without those. They love love their football. People love football here in Austin. Yeah. Or maybe a giant can of Lone Star beer or something. I don't know. But things are things are burning. Things are exploding. People are dying. Really great fire stunts. All good stuff. At some point, Chance, uh, slow motion, upside down, shoots a gun, and that's pretty great. Duvet shoots an arrow through a float and kills another guy. Uh, it's a pretty good sequence. I think he upside down shoots, was that how Sven Thorsen died? I think so. I think you're right, yeah. So Sven Thorsen, he shoots him a bunch, and then he kicks him. Now, Sven Thorsen is uh, chomping on a cigar this whole whole time he's been in the movie, and you realize why he's been chomping on it, just to when Van Damme eventually kicks him in the face just to sell that face kick a little bit harder. Because, David, imagine me getting kicked in the face. I know. I know it's easy to picture. No. It sort of has a little bit of excitement to it, sure. But imagine (laughs) kicking me in the face causes a big old honking cigar to go flying out of my mouth. Now we're talking, right? Yeah. Short of, like, seeing actual, like, chiclets leave your mouth, like, actual teeth flying out. Yeah, cigar's the way to go. And then when Uncle Duvet kills a guy with a bow and arrow, I swear to fucking God, the camera hangs on him a little bit, and Wilford Brimley... In just maybe like one second of screen time, has this look on his face where you just could tell that Duvet is like, killing only makes you more empty share. Just like so much remorse. <laughs> the fact that things came to this. You know what I mean? Yeah. In this one little one second look, you could tell he has no pleasure from killing this guy. I just, I, I don't know. I was like, I don't know who won the Oscar for Best Sporting Actor in 93. Uh, but unless your name is Denzel Washington, you hand that thing back. I'm going to look that up real quick. <laughs> It's time of the adjust for the future. Oh, it was. You have a fucking hard target search, more like hard target movie is what they should have given it to fucking <laughs> Wilford Brimley here. So Duvet, he's old hat at uh, killing people, but I'll tell you who's uh, who's new at killing people, Nat, because some guy corners her and he's like, you dumb bitch. And so he didn't know she had a gun. And so she just slugs him in the gut a few times. And, and now she's a murderer, which is always very fun. And of course, <laughs> Uncle Duvet is like, oh, leave the killing to me, shit. And then here we finally have a showdown between Chance and Van Cleef, right? And they've met twice previously in the movie. 
yeah, their first encounter was nonviolent. We had another John Woo trademark here because there's like a standoff between the two, right? They're back to back. Yeah, this feel, uh, this feels very quaint now. You know, this feels it feels like we just saw this in Face Off a few years later. But if this is 1993 and I'm watching this movie, this is the coolest thing in the world. I really enjoyed this. And they're standing back to back, and Van Cleef says he's like, uh, you know, I've been looking for you, and Boudreaux says you've been looking in the wrong places, and Van Cleef then says that's good because I know you wouldn't want to hurt my feelings, which is by the way the third or fourth time a character has said. Some joke about hurting his feelings. So I guess at this point, the audience is like, ah, this dude loves making jokes about feelings, right? And then uh, eventually, you know, after some, I guess it's like some fun action here, uh, Van Damme shoots the shit out of Van Cleef, including we get a little John Woo trademark of uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, he's got a gun in each hand, and he's double fisting it. He shoots Van Cleef and sort of lands on the ground, and Van Cleef kind of like falls over onto him. Jean-Claude Van Damme is on his back. And as Van Cleef falls, Van Damme catches him with Van Damme's feet and they kind of lifts him in the air like they're doing acro yoga or something. Mm-hmm. And then he drops the grenade that he was holding and uh, Van Damme just catches it. And the fact that there is no funny quip kill line here killed me, David. Just, I just couldn't, I was like, oh, it's just a perfect little like, say something stupid. Like, I don't know, because he kept talking about feelings, maybe just like, thanks for sharing or something like that. Because also he just oh, okay. gave him the grenade. Or like, uh, I hope you feel better or something there. It just, it just, ah, you got to do something there. Your session is up or something like, uh, okay, yeah, I'm with you. So now all the other level bosses are dead. It's time to take on the big boss, Chance versus Hendrickson, Fushan. It's Chance versus Fushan. They're uh, cornering each other in the the warehouse. At one point, they're shouting at each other. It's like, how does it feel to be hunted? And then Chance shouts us back. You tell actually, I can't even remember who says what because it's such a like. No, you. How, you're the one being hunted, not me. Ha ha ha! Like it's it's very silly. The script does not show its best at that moment. And at some point, Fushan's like, "All right, Chance, take your best shot." And so Chance does. Like he somersaults through fire and plugs at him with a with a shotgun. If you're gonna ask someone to take their best shot and they take their honest to god best shot like that, give them all the awards. Yeah, he clearly. <laughs> I was like, oh that. 100% was his best shot. However, Fushan was, I guess, wearing a vest because that shotgun, even though it blew him 12 feet in one direction, <laughs> he got up and he just dusts himself off. Yeah, dusts himself off, uh, grabs Nat for a hostage, you know, holds her in front of him. Uh, so, of course, you know, Chance has a shotgun. He's not going to be able to, to shoot her with that, you know, or shoot him with that because he might shoot her instead. Fushan points this out. He's like, he brought the wrong tool for the job. So uh, Chance realizes this. Throws away a shotgun, but is still holding on to that grenade mm. as if he thinks that is the right tool for the job, which is not something anybody in the audience is thinking. And so here is where Fushan is like, why are you fighting for these people? You have nothing in common for them. Why? Nothing in common with them. Yeah, so Chance responds with, poor people get bored too, which is a pretty killer fucking line. I hated that line. I fucking How dare you? <laughs> it's just so stupid. The rich people are only killing them because they're bored or whatever. But in that moment, when he said that line, I was like, you know what? What's stopping us from rising up and getting these? <laughs> like, there was a mo- real moment of motivation where I was like, yeah, I'm poor and bored too. Well, let's go kill some millionaires. Oh, interesting. Okay, maybe yes. now I like it. Maybe, you know. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So Chance at this point is super fucking pissed. And he's like beating the shit out of Fushan. Fushan tries to hit him with a board that's on fire. Chance just grabs it, right? And he's holding the board that's on fire. And here you go. Chance's anger turns him basically into a action suit to a superhuman, right? Because he's holding his board that is on fire. 
And then we have flashbacks or flashes back. Flashback. Uh, flashes back. Okay. Well, but he wasn't even there, so it's just like he's sort of uh, transporting himself into other times and places. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't. We see all the murders that I guess he's just remembering, but he happens to remember them exactly as they happened. Of Bender, Detective Mitchell, and Roper, and then now we finally have a line. He looks at Fushan and he goes, "Hunting season is over," and then he headbutts him a good eight to ten feet. I oddly. I'm loving it, but I don't mark out for some reason. But I am, I am loving this ending here. I, I, I'm, I'm loving it too. Oh, you I know. left out something. I'm so sorry. Please, don't mean to interrupt. He, um, he took, he takes the grenade and he, he, you know, pops it open, and you get like a whoo, slow motion shot. Is the the release or whatever on the grenade flies up in the air, and then he sh- he drops it very calmly down Fushan's pants. And he says, hunting season's over, headbutts him eight to 10 feet. Now look, okay, you had a problem with that poor people get bored to line. I had a problem with the grenade in the pants line because these are very flowy, breezy slacks and there's no way those slacks are holding onto that grenade. Maybe his undies, if he's got a brief going on, something that, uh, you know, snugs the berries, God help me for saying that, but like something that could catch the grenade. But I, I, I had a hard time buying this scene. I mean, I guarantee you, by the way, he's not wearing any underwear. Just, I just got that vibe off Fushan. He's a no underwear dude and we'll bring it up at the drop of a hat. You know what I mean? <laughs> Fair enough. So Fushan is digging around in his pants trying to find this grenade and he pulls it out in time and unscrews the uh, detonator part of the grenade from the explosive. And he's like, hey, hey, and he's still holding them like inches apart. But when the grenade goes off, the little electrical charge, even though it's no longer connected to the explosion, you see like a little tiny like electrical bolt travel from the charger inside the grenade. And then Fushan goes, whoops. <laughs> and then he explodes <laughs> for my final markout moment. I don't know. I thought that was so fucking funny. I thought I thought it was really hilarious too. I don't know if uh, markout is how I would just characterize it, but that was the end of a really satisfying meal. Just at that whoops. And then... The end of the movie. You see, there's no like next week, Chance and Nat are boning or something like that. You just see Chance and Nat like helping Uncle Duvet, who I guess was shot at some point. Yeah. What's his face did an arrow to the chest, but it stabbed his flask. And so he's like, this is the biggest travesty of it all, man. Man. They're carrying him out of the movie in the credits roll, which I mean, I, first of all, I'm glad that the movie is just like, just, just wrap it up. But also, did Chance catch that boat? I mean, he made his $217. Was he? Did he actually ship out next week? And he's just like, man, you guys never gonna believe the week I had. Like, uh, what happened there? There's an end credit sequence where he's chasing the boat. He's holding the two hundred seventeen dollars in his hand. He's holding his uh, sun hat uh, with the other, making sure it doesn't fly away. And it's a very cute sequence. It's actually the beginning to overboard, I believe. That, if she just gave him two hundred seventeen dollars and was like, "Well, see ya," that would have been <laughs> so fucking funny. Okay, David, that is the movie. How many markout moments did you have? I had three. Uh, you know, it was a it was a satisfying movie throughout, but as far as like chanting the movie's name, I, I had three. I came in at four, which is the same number I had for our current Top of the Mountain movie, The Raid, too. So, Mac Blake, is this someone's favorite movie? I'd say sure, probably, but not a lot of someone's. And the reason I say that is if you love John Woo, if John Woo's like your favorite director, this is not your favorite John Woo movie, right? Even if you like his American stuff, you're probably probably face off, right? Sure. If you love Jean-Claude Van Damme, again, this is probably not your favorite Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. Uh, I'd imagine that would be uh, Kick or excuse me, Bloodsport, maybe, or you know, the Hockey Cop movie. <laughs> was it Sudden Impact? Sudden Death. Sudden Death. Yeah. So I mean, I think his movie is great, but I, 
I, again, I don't know if it's even, I think it's beloved maybe by, you know, some dummies like us, but I don't know. I don't know if it's a lot of people's favorite. What about you? Do you think it's someone's favorite movie? I, I think it's going to be someone who falls into that Venn diagram of this movie or like, you know, who picks up on, on one of the niche aspects of this movie. Like I could see this being the favorite movie of somebody in the moonshine industry where they're like, Oh, Duvet's my favorite character. I want to be like Duvet one day. I want to use my moonshine still. I don't know why he's talking like that. Uh, but I want to blow up somebody with my still. Uh, I could see that. I could see somebody moonshine adjacent really liking this movie. All right, David, punch-ups. All right, David, what things could you do to improve this movie? Uh, I think the script is okay. You know, it's not great, but it's sufficiently silly and it's sufficiently actionly. It is That script is exactly what it needs to be. I think I'm recasting Van Damme. I want someone with more charisma. In fact, I would probably lean harder toward the charisma than lean toward the action parts of it. Uh, so I'm going with somebody like John Candy, 93 John Candy, you know, trying to sell the charm, trying to sell, you know, hey, I really need that 217 bucks. And, and the, the action will kind of just fall into place magically. John Candy, that's an intimidating choice. That is for sure. Oh. Something I like about Van Damme, though, is that Van Damme actually fights, unlike action heroes of his era. Because like Schwarzenegger and Stallone and Willis, like they're just kind of punching people. This was when Steven Seagal was doing a like block, block, shove. That was his only, his move was just block, block, and then I'll shove you down to the ground. But I was thinking the, how I'd punch this up is I would add in some more like kill lines or, you know, I think there's, you could punch up, make a script a little funnier. But then I was like, wait, who do I trust to deliver funny lines? Not Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, you just need to bring in Duvet earlier in the movie. Mm. Here's how I would punch up this movie. I would have other characters make fun of Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> okay. Have Yancey Butler, like, just bust on him a little bit more instead of being like, oh, gee, shucks, you're really good at fighting. Be like, uh, you know, hey, hi, hey, hockey here or something like that. Just like- Yeah, uh, the uh, the you should be taller runner from Roadhouse. Like, that's really all you need. Yeah. You got some other good actors in this movie. Just uh, use them more is what I would say. Okay. But here's, let me ask you this, David. If they could remake Point Break, they could easily remake Hard Target. Not saying it was a, it'd be a good idea. If you were going to remake Hard Target today- who would you cast in the Wilford Brimley role? Now, keep in mind, Wilford Brimley, even though he is one of those actors who was always old, he was 59 years old, 59 years young when this movie is released. Golly. So who would you uh, put in the uh, Uncle Duvet role? 2022 Hard Target remake. I had a, I had a first, I'm going first thought, best thought on her. And I want to check the age real quick. <laughs> okay. So instead of 59-year-old Wilford Brimley for this role... I would go 54-year-old Hugh Jackman. Uh, wow. Oh, cause wow. Because then he could have fun with the accent. He could still be action-y. He could still play it more of like a grizzled prospector than a than a moonshine guy. I, 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 I would love to see the versatility on that one. I mean, maybe my – I feel like that's a great answer. My answer, maybe a little predictable, 53-year-old Jack Black. Oh, that's good. And because like could Jack Black, but here's I want I want this dude embedded with some swamp people for a month, really nail that accent. Could he get like the funny duvet parts? Yes, of course he could. But I also want to see Jack Black nail that post-murder thousand yard stare. Every body I make is just one small piece <laughs> of my soul that I lose. Like that unspoken emotion. I think I'd love to see Jack Black take that on. I think that'd be I really think that's awesome. great. Yeah. All right, David, let's go to the Punch Mountain video store here. I'll open it up. Now, uh, we're, we're flush with money here. And so we've, uh, we've managed to snag three physical copies of Hard Target that you can now stock in the Punch Mountain video store. What sections? It's an all-action movie video store, I should mention. Yep. Uh, what sections are you putting Hard Target in? Well, you know me. 
I love the director's wall. I think John Woo deserves a, a slot. Definitely. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm going to cheat one there. Uh, so that's going to leave me with two. I think one copy goes in uh, the category called something for the ladies action because I think uh, Van Damme looks very muscly and very uh, sweaty and shiny in a lot of this movie. And I think uh, when he gets in that tank top, there's something for the ladies. Uh, so I think a copy goes there. Uh, I'm putting a copy. I don't know what to call this section. I'm just going to call it multiplex action. And by that, I mean, I used to call them Houston movies and that kind of came off as a pejorative. But it was a, it was kind of like... A movie with a broad appeal where it's going to get high school teenagers on a Friday night. It's going to get 20-something young parents who just, who got a sitter and they just want to go see a movie. And then you got like 30-year-olds who just go see everything. You know, the sort of sad sacks who will go to a matinee show on a Monday. This is one of those multiplex, wide, you know, broad appeal movies. And, and I think I'd put a copy there. Yeah, that makes sense. You could watch this movie with anybody, David. He watches with the, your right wing uncle, and they won't give him anything to be like, you know, these libs. It's like they finally <laughs> shut the fuck up for once. I, uh, if I was stalking, which I'm not, I'd put it in Van Dam. Give him his own section. Ah, nice. And okay. Instead of multiplex, I'd make a small tweak. I would say mulletplex. I think because there's some hot mullet action in this movie, and I think that deserves to go. Uh, Very recognized. good. Also, another question for you, David. Shoot. Everyone knows that if you encounter a movie star. The best way to get that star's attention and to get their instant respect is to yell the name of one of the star's movie at the star. For example, if I saw Bradley Cooper walking down the street, I would go, yo, hangover. What's up, man? Or something like, midnight meat train. Hey, man, let me get an autograph. You know what I mean? (laughs) I'm with you. Okay. Prior to this movie, I might have chosen something else. But now if I see Jean-Claude Van Damme, I'm definitely going, I'm definitely with a Y, definitely yelling at him. Hey, Hard Target, let's be friends. What would you yell at Jean-Claude Van Damme if you saw him now? Would you yell Hard Target? No, not, not at all. Oh. Uh, before I ask, do you have, do you know what your one would have been before Hard Target? Oh, uh, I, I do. But why don't you say yours first? Uh, I would go Time Cop. Time Cop. Uh, that's time Cop. One. Yeah. I would have been like, yo, Double Impact. Bloodsport would be a good one, too. Bloodsport. But then you don't want to yell that at strangers. Yeah. So. Oh, I feel if it's kind of like Mortal Kombat. Like, uh, you yell it, and then you <laughs> might actually have to engage in some Bloodsport. Fair enough. Oh, David, you feel that ground shaking? Uh, I feel my stomach turning into knots, is what I it's feel. It's time for some more rocks to tumble down the mountain, and we see we could reveal the position of hard target. So right now, David, currently on the mountain, at its peak, Raid 2, down at the very bottom, Base Camp, Chappie, and in between, we got Matrix and The Rock. So it's Raid 2, The Matrix, The Rock, Chappie. David? Um, if it's me, I'm putting it above The Rock. Between the Matrix and the Rock, I think. David, this is the best part about Punch Mountain is it's there's no arguments here. You know what I mean? There's That's no true. making That's... arguments. It's just seeing the rankings. And David, I could see the golden lettering now appearing on the mountain. And I could see it's, it's Raid 2, The Matrix, Hard Target, The Rock, and Chappie. Fantastic. Uh, oh, Fan- man. I, I'm on a roll, too. I'm getting all of these right. I mean, it's, it, you know, I know a lot of people take umbrage to that, but that's the problem is that you're wrong. You know what I mean? It's okay to have opinions. It's just when, at the end of the day, you have to know the facts that Hard Target is a better action movie than The Rock. That's right. It's not, it doesn't mean The Rock's bad. It doesn't mean you can't love it. It doesn't mean no, it no, can't no. be your favorite movie. Yeah. It just means that, you know, there's subjective opinions and then there's the objective uh, mountain. Yeah. There's the mountain. Sorry. Ah, there's the horn calling us to action. David, on this podcast, we talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. And this month, we're spotlighting the Innocence Project. Guided by science and grounded in anti-racism, the Innocence Project works to free the innocent 
prevent wrongful convictions, and create fair, compassionate, and equitable systems of justice for everyone. After each episode this month, uh, Punch Mountain, that's us, we'll be making a small donation to the Instance Project. Also, for every review we get on iTunes, I previously said iTunes and Spotify, but you can't actually leave reviews on Spotify, so feel free to just mail it in, snail mail, or attach it to a, a you know Raven or something like that. But for every review we get on iTunes, we'll add an additional $1 to our donation, up to a certain amount, obviously, just in case uh, any trolls out there think they've uh, found a loophole to bankrupt us. And hey, if it's a good review, we'll probably read it on the next podcast. For more information about The Innocence Project or to donate directly to them, visit innocenceproject.org. And that is going to wrap it up for another week, folks. Don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at, at punchmountain at gmail.com. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for Mac standup. <laughs> Next week, from 2019, directed by Elizabeth Banks, it's Charlie's Angels, the Kristen Stewart one. Mac, you looking forward to this one? I am indeed, David. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.